I have a question for you this morning. Who are you? Who are you? It's an important question. A question that I think we may think about from time to time. It's a question that we can answer a lot of different ways. It's a question of identity, isn't it? Who are you? Who am I? It's a question that could be answered pretty superficially. I could tell you that I'm someone who loves to eat pizza. And it's a question that could be answered pretty in-depth. I could tell you I'm someone who loves my wife and my children. I'm a father and I'm a husband. But who are you? It seems like we live in a world that is obsessed in many ways with answering that question with finding what it means to feel comfortable in an identity, to finding where it is that we find meaning and purpose, and to finding a good answer to this question, who are you? In fact, many of us in this world feel like this is our journey on this earth to try and answer that question, who am I? What is the association that I can make that will finally set my soul at rest? Uh, What is the identity that I belong to? What is the thing that will provide me meaning and purpose and significance? And one thing about answering that question, who am I, is once we answer it, once we decide, okay, this is my identity, then that answer affects Everything that we think and say and do. How we answer the question, who am I, will greatly affect how it is that we live. And when there are changes in our identity, even when there are small changes, where there are shifts in our identity, our actions change. The way we think changes. It's not unlike um, when, an, when an athlete changes teams. When an athlete goes from one sports team to another, the way it works in our life when there's shifts in our identity and changes in our identity. So one day, an athlete is wearing one uniform and looks a certain way, and thousands of fans are cheering for them, and thousands of fans are loving everything that they do, and, and, though, and they're speaking well of a certain city, and the next day, the next day, everyone dislikes them. And a whole other group of people, tens of thousands of people who, who never liked that person before, all of a sudden adore that person and their language changes. Where at once they loved one city and didn't like another city, now they love both cities that, they're play, that they've played in or are playing in. They love the fans of the new place because when there's a shift in our identity, things change. It happens uh, pretty dramatically, usually when players go from the Red Sox to the Yankees, as you can see on the screen. Some of you remember Johnny Damon, but it usually happens this way. These Red Sox players can look however they want, right? We can grow their hair long and grow the beards. But the season after Johnny Damon got traded from the Red Sox to the Yankees, all of a sudden, he was the Bronx pretty boy, wasn't he? (laughs) Clean cut and clean shaven. Thumbs up. When there's shifts in our identity, even when there are small changes, it changes the way we speak and the way we think and the way we act. So in my life, if I so much as change my school, 
If I go from elementary school to middle school, or if I go from middle school to high school, or on to college or graduate school, every shift in my identity as a middle school student, as a high school student, as a college student, as a graduate student, changes the way I think and feel about myself. It changes uh, how I approach things and the way I introduce myself to people. When I go from being unmarried to married, or no kids to having kids, whatever the shift might be, I move from one town to another town. When things in my identity change, it changes the way I talk about myself, it changes the way I think, and it changes what I do. This morning, we're going to talk about the single greatest identity shift that can happen in someone's life. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know we've been working our way through the book of Romans. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Rome in the first century AD. And what we're going to talk about today and what Paul has for us is we're going to talk about the single greatest identity shift that could ever happen in somebody's life. Paul is going to give us the ultimate answer to the question, who am I? And he's going to tell us, he's going to tell us how the answer to that question should affect our lives. If you were with us last week, you, re- you may remember that our sermon centered around, as we finished up Romans chapter 7, it centered around the reality of the gap that exists in our relationship between us and God. And this is what the gap looks like. Inevitably, when we follow God, when we choose to try to be the kind of people who God is pleased with, what happens is a gap forms in our relationship. God has set out his law and his commands and his rules for us to follow. And despite our best efforts, despite our best efforts, despite our actions, we can never live up to the standard that God has set for us. As one pastor named Stuart Briscoe said, and I love this quote about Romans chapter 7, he said, it's not necessarily that we are as bad as we could possibly be, it's that we're really, we're just not as good as God requires us to be. And I think that's a great way to look at it. Romans chapter 7, when we look at this gap, we're not saying we're the worst people on the face of the earth, but what we are saying is there's no possible way under our own efforts we can live up to the standard that God has set. And if you missed that sermon, I'd invite you to go back and listen to it from last week. You can listen online to understand exactly what it is that we're talking about. Well, we talked about a number of responses to this gap in order to solve the problem. And we said that Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans, only leaves us one choice, and that is to trust in Christ. Paul says that's the only option available to us if we want to bridge this gap that exists between who God says we should be and who we really are. The only way to bridge that gap is to trust in Christ. So we said that last week and then we dismissed. And you may have said to yourself, well, is that all that there is? Shouldn't there be more to bridging this gap? Shouldn't there be something else that happens other than just trust? It seems a little too simplistic. It seems a little too easy. How does trust in Christ help me on my day-to-day, in my day-to-day life? Well, no, that's not it. And so we are going to continue this discussion this morning because this morning, Paul is going to tell us what happens to us the moment we put our trust in Christ. 
And Paul says the moment that we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we receive two things from God that should affect two very big things in our lives. So as we read through these verses, this is what we're going to talk about today. The moment that we trust in Christ, Paul says we receive two things from God. And those two things should dramatically affect two big areas in our lives. We're going to be reading out of Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn there. Otherwise, our words will be up on the screen. Let's read Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17 together. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul tells us when we trust in Christ, we receive two things that affect two very big things in our life or that should affect two very big things in our life. And trust is the catalyst for all of this to happen. So if we want to bridge the gap, we trust in Christ, but there's more that is to come. Paul says, first of all, when you put your trust in Christ, the first thing that you receive is that you receive the Spirit of God. And if you put your trust in Christ, you receive the Spirit of God. It's going to take us a little bit to flesh this out, but what does that, what does that look like? What does Paul mean when he's talking about that? I think this will become clear as we go through the rest of the sermon, at least I, I hope that it will. But just briefly, this is what Paul means. 
Paul is talking about the difference between the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. At the end of chapter 7, what we see in Paul, if you remember or can look back in your Bible, we see Paul trying on his own to live up to the law that God has put. And he says very plainly, I can't do it. The things that I hate, I do. And the things that I want to do, I cannot do. But now Paul says, with the spirit of God living in me, it is the spirit of God who gives me the strength. It is the spirit of God who gives me the ability. It is the spirit of God who gives me the will to do those things that I could not do on my own, to live the life that I could not live under my own authority, to live the life that I could not live under my own strength. The Spirit of God is is this vast resource that we cannot tap into until we put our trust in Christ and then the Spirit wells up inside of us and leads us and guides us and directs us and empowers us to live the life that God's calling us to live. During the Great Depression, there was a man by the name of Mr. Yates. He was a farmer. Uh, You can Google Yates oil field and read about this story. And Mr. Yates was a farmer in Texas, and he bought this plot of land uh, in the the middle of nowhere, West Texas, uh, and he tried to grow crops, and he failed at growing crops. And like many in the Great Depression, he and his wife and his family uh, just got by any way they could. And one day on a hunch, Mr. Yates got everything together that he could get. And he made an agreement with an oil drilling company that they would come to his fields and that they would test for oil. Well, they started to drill. And it wasn't until about 1,100 feet down that oil started gushing out of the top of the drill. And after they were done with that site, they went and they found two more sites twice as large, two more deposits twice as large as the one they initially found on Mr. Yates' land. And when it was all said and done, Yates' oil field in Texas became one of the largest producing oil fields in the entire state. 30 years after um, the initial drilling was done, the oil field was still producing 125,000 barrels of oil a day. I'm assuming that's a lot. I don't really know if that's a lot of oil, but I'm assuming that's a lot of oil. And even to this day, although not at the same level, they're still putting oil, pulling oil out of that field. Now here's the deal. For quite a while, Mr. Yates and his family were living in great poverty not realizing that underneath them was a great resource that could change everything in their life. And that is how many of us live when it comes to the Spirit of God. Many of us live in a deep spiritual poverty, trying to do this thing on our own, trying to be the people that God wants us to be, and failing at it all along the way, rather than putting our trust in Christ and allowing that great resource that God has provided that's living right underneath the surface to be able to come and to fill our lives and to fill our minds and to fill our hearts and empower us to do what God is calling us to do. And if you trust in Christ, you have the spirit of God living in you. 
And we're not going to really get into it a lot this morning, but some would say, well, I haven't necessarily experienced all the gifts of the Spirit that I hear other people experiencing. Listen, if you trust in Christ, you have the Spirit of God living in you, and the Spirit is leading you and guiding you and directing you each and every day. It's up to us whether or not we'll recognize it and choose to tap into the resource. When Paul talks about this massive identity shift we go through, between being people that try to be good on our own to trusting in Christ, the first thing he says that we receive is we receive the Spirit of God in our lives. The second thing that he says we receive is Paul says that we receive the mark of sonship, that we are adopted into God's family. Now some of us maybe hear that phrase sonship and it doesn't really sit really well with us in our, in our modern world. What's, what does Paul mean by that? Is he being exclusive by that term sonship? Well, I don't believe that he is. And I'll tell you why. Paul's talking about receiving an inheritance from God as children of God. And he's writing to two cultures that were different in many ways, but similar in at least one respect. And that is both in the Jewish culture to which Paul is writing because many of the people in the church at Rome were, Jew, were former Jews or were Jewish people practicing Christianity. And so Paul is writing to them and Paul is also writing to those who live in the ancient Roman world. In both of those cultures, the person who would receive the inheritance would be the firstborn son. If you were any other child, even if you were a son, you would not receive the inheritance. Only the firstborn son in both of those cultures would receive the inheritance. In fact, I was reading this week about members of the Roman Senate who, if they did not have a son, would adopt a son so that they would have an heir that could receive the inheritance. And so Paul's writing into these cultures and he's saying, listen, male or female, if you trust in God, it's like God is making you the, the most important child in his family. He is giving you the mark of sonship so that when you come and you trust Christ, no matter who you are, you come into his family family and your value and your worth is given to you through Jesus Christ and you are acknowledged as a member of the family of God. You are in the place of the one who receives the inheritance of all God has to offer. In 1995, the movie Toy Story came out. I can't believe it was 1995, but in 1995, the movie Toy Story came out. And if you ever saw the movie Toy Story, it features um, these uh, toys that, that come to life and, and have personalities and they have these adventures. And so two of the main characters, one main character is named Woody and he's voiced by Tom Hanks. He's a cowboy, sort of ragdoll. And the other main character is named Buzz Lightyear, voiced by Tim Alan. And early on in the movie, we see that Buzz Lightyear does not recognize that he is a toy. In fact, he thinks he's really a superhero. 
And so uh, he has a little light on his arm and he thinks it's really a laser. He believes that he can fly. Uh, He believes that he is the one who is taking over and saving the world. And he really has this belief that he's not a toy, that he is the real Buzz Lightyear. And eventually, Woody, the character played by Tom Hanks, just can't take it anymore. And he looks at Buzz Lightyear and he says, can't you understand? You're just a toy. You're just a pile of plastic. You don't save the world. You can't fly. You don't have a laser beam. It's just a red light. You're just a toy. And of course, Buzz Lightyear is despondent. And he starts to get down on himself and he says that he's not worth anything and maybe he should just leave. And eventually Woody comes back to him and he says to him, in different words, he says, don't you understand? Your value doesn't come from who you are as this toy. It comes because you have one who loves you and calls you his. And Buzz Lightyear picks up his foot and he noticed on the bottom the name Andy written on the bottom of his foot. And that's the name of the boy who owns him and loves him and plays with him as his toy. And when he says to him, your value doesn't come because you're the savior of the world or whoever you think you are. Your value comes because there's someone who loves you like Andy does. And the same thing is for us. Our value and our worth doesn't come from the fact that we can be unbelievable good people. It doesn't come from any other place than the fact that God loves us enough to call us his own. And when God invites us in our family, what Paul says he does is that we move from being people who were once condemned and once abandoned and once sinners to people who are no longer condemned and who are invited to come in and to be a part of the family. And our worth comes not from the fact that we can go out and save the world on our own. Our worth comes from the fact that we have a God who knows us and and loves us and calls us his own. The great evangelist and pastor and author Ravi Zacharias, he tells the story of a a couple that he knows that own an orphanage um, abroad. And he said that the orphanage specializes in kids with the developmental difficulties. And there was one boy, he said, in the orphanage who was nine years old And he had a disorder in his mind where he had a very difficult time piecing together information. So if you gave him simple tasks, he he couldn't really do more than one thing at a time. And it was a, a challenge to work with. And so families would come in and adopt children out of the orphanage And what happened is time and time again, because uh, this child had had an issue with his mind that made him uh, hard to work with, he would be passed over for adoption time and time again. And Ravi Zacharias tells of how uh, he began to get despondent and the child watched all his friends go into loving homes. And Ravi said one day a couple from Texas called the orphanage and they had adopted a classmate of this boy before. And they said, is that boy still there? 
And the leaders of the orphanage said yes. And they worked out that they were going to adopt him. And they called and they said he had a name that was very common in the country he was from, but difficult to pronounce. So they said, we're going to give him a new name. And we want you to tell him that his new name is going to be um, Ashton Ashton Josiah. And we're going to call him AJ. And from the moment they told that boy that he had a family and that his name was AJ, Ravi says that he would run around that house and he would say, I have a family and my name is AJ. I have a family and my name is AJ because he knew that he was loved and he was accepted and he was invited into a family. And Paul says the exact same thing happens to us. That where we are devalued outside of the family of God, when we put our trust in Christ and we receive that mark of sonship, we are invited into God's family. And our self-worth and our, and, our, and our being comes not from the things that we accomplish on our own, but from the fact that God is our father and we are his children. Paul says, listen, when you put your trust in God, this massive identity shift takes place where you go from being in control to God being in control. And you receive two things. You get a spirit and you get a new identity in his family. But if that's true, Paul says, of you, then it better affect two big things in your life. If that's true, that you trust Christ and that you have his spirit and that you have a new identity as a child of God, then that better affect two things in our lives, Paul says, and I'll give them to you quickly. The first thing that Paul says that it better affect in our lives is it better affect the way that we think. Paul says if we have our identity in Christ and we're children of God and we've received his spirit, then we should think differently than the way we did before. The 20th century Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, once said, your religion is where your mind wanders when you're in solitude, meaning that when you're all alone and completely undistracted, where does your mind go? If we are walking in the spirit, as Paul tells us to, when we're undistracted and in those places of solitude, our mind will go to the things of God. Whatever our religion is, that's where our mind will wander. So ask yourself, what is it that you daydream about? What do you daydream about? It reveals a lot about how we're thinking, about what our ultimate identity is found in. If when I have time to daydream, I dream about relationship and power and money and success and being accepted by other people, if that's where my dreams go or I dream of just being alone and apart from everybody or whatever it is that my mind wanders to, if it's anything other than the things of God and the things of Christ, then Paul says we need to make sure that our identity is being found in the right place. Because if we do trust Christ, and we have God's spirit, and we are children of God, then when it's time for our mind to wander, we'll wander to the things of God and not the things of this world. And so the first thing that Paul says it should affect is the way that we think. And the second thing that Paul says it should affect is the way that we live. The first thing that should affect is the way that we think. The second thing that this should affect is the way that we live.
when we're doing the things that God asks us to do, if we're trying to get this right, a question that we should ask ourselves is what's my motivation for doing what I'm doing? If I'm doing something good, what's my motivation? If I'm doing it because I'm afraid that if I don't do it, God will get me. That God's standing up there with a pile of lightning bolts and if I do it or I don't do it, he's ready to throw one down at me. If I do it because I think it'll make my self-esteem better. If I do it because I think that I'll get applause from the people around me. If I do it because I think that other people will look and they'll say, wow, what a great guy he is. If I do it for any other reason than the fact that I am a child of God, saved by Jesus Christ, filled with his spirit and a new identity in his family... If I do it for any other reason than that, then my motivation is in the wrong place. Paul says we have a massive shift in our identity. We go from being on our own to being children of God, filled with his spirit. And our lives should exude and flow out of that identity. We no longer do things like in chapter 7 to earn God's approval. We have God's approval through Christ. And so we go and we live the life he's calling us to live because that is who we are. And Paul tells us that second that we trust Christ, we get two things. We get a spirit and we become children of God. We get a new identity. And that new identity needs to affect how we think and how we live. So ask yourself, what do I daydream about And what is my motivation for what I do each and every day? The motivation is money and not to be lazy and to win other people's approval. It's the wrong motivation. Our action should flow out of our identity that comes through Christ, Paul tells us. That comes through being filled with the Spirit. That comes in being children of God. So I go to work tomorrow morning and I do so not as a computer programmer first or not as a person in retail first or not as a cashier first or not as an accountant first. I go there in the morning tomorrow first and foremost as a child of God ready to glorify God in everything that I do. Because that's my primary identity. Paul says that we should think and live differently. But this is totally different than chapter 7. In chapter 7, Paul is trying on his own. In chapter 7, it's all in his own strength. In chapter 8, it's about being in the spirit. It's about the strength and power of God informing the way that we think and informing the way that we live. And what Paul says is in our relationship with God, we need to start asking ourselves a different question when it comes to how we live and how we think. You see, many of us come to God and we would say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. Tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? That's our primary question to God. What Paul says we should ask is when we think about what are we to think and what are we to say is that we should come back to our relationship with God time and time again and first say, who am I? Who am I? I'm a child of God filled with his spirit. Now God, what do you want me to do? If I try to do it before that, if I try to do it on my own, if I try to do it without recognizing my identity, it will never get done. Who am I? J.I. Packer, in his uh, fairly well-known book, writes, 
If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Listen to that. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, he, it means he does not understand Christian, Christianity very well at all. If you want to understand how much someone understands the Christian faith, J.I. Packer says, ask them how much they understand the fact that they're a child of God. And how much does that reality inform the way that they live and the way that they think and the way that they worship? You know, some of us this morning have to ask ourselves some hard questions. Because we know in our lives there are places in our lives where we do not think the way that God would call us to think, where we do not live the way God would call us to live. And we need to go back and ask ourselves if we're finding our identity in Christ, if we're finding our identity in the fact that we are children of God, if we're finding our identity in the fact that we are people filled with the Spirit, or if we're finding it somewhere else out in the world. Paul gives us two options. You're either finding your identity in Christ or you're finding it in the world. There's no other option. You're doing one or the other. And if it's in Christ, then it needs to be affecting the way that we think and the way that we live on a daily basis. So some of us have to ask ourselves some hard questions. Those places where we're not thinking the way God calls us to think and we're not living the way that God calls us to live, we need to go back and ask ourselves where our identity is. Where are we trying to find our identity? Where are we trying to get our approval? It's either in Christ or it's not. There's no other option that Paul gives us. And for those who are here this morning and would say, listen, I, I don't know if I have the Spirit. I trust in Christ, but I don't know if I have the Spirit. You have the Spirit of God living in you if you put your trust in Christ. I promise you that it's there. The question is whether or not we are listening to God's Spirit. When God's Spirit prompts us and tells us not to go there or to go there, when God's Spirit prompts us and tells us to say something or not to say something, when God's Spirit prompts us and tells us to turn off the computer screen or to turn off the television, we have have a choice whether or not we're going to listen. That voice that got you up out of bed this morning and told you to come to church, that's the Spirit of God at work inside of you. That is the Spirit of God who is living and active inside of you. We make daily choices whether or not we're going to listen. But the problem is not that the Spirit of God doesn't live in us if we trust in Christ. The problem is whether or not we're tapping into the resource. That's our choice. If you trust in Christ, you have the Spirit. And if you want more of God's Spirit in your life, if you want to be able to listen to His Spirit more, the only way I know to get more of God's Spirit in your life and be more sensitive to the Spirit is to go to God Himself and ask Him for it. There's no other secret. I'm not, I can't point you to a book. I can't point you to a worship song. The only way to get more of God's spirit and be more sensitive to the spirit of God in your life is to go to God again and again in his presence and ask for it. And then be sensitive to it. 
You want to know what God wants you to think or how God wants you to live? Before you go to God and ask him what you're supposed to do, remind yourself of who you are. You trust in Christ. You're a child of God, filled with his spirit. May we live and think out of that identity. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward as we close this morning. And I'd invite you just to bow your head and close your eyes and think with me for a moment. There's some of us in this place this morning that the step for us when it comes to our relationship with God is to put our trust in Christ. And I'll tell you this morning briefly, if you'd be willing to do that for the first time, God will restore you and give you an identity and a sense of worth that could come from nowhere else. There's nothing in this world that can provide the riches of knowing the spirit of God and being called his child. And so maybe for you this morning, in these moments that we have together, you and your heart, right where you're sitting, would say to God, God, I want to put my trust in you for the very first time. I'm not even sure exactly what all that means, but today's the day that I want to trust you. And for some of us in this place, we just need to be reminded and encouraged that our identity is in Christ, that it's not up to us. We're so aware of the fact that we can't do this thing on our own and what an encouragement it is this morning to be reminded that we're not supposed to do it on our own, that God has provided his spirit and he has adopted us as his children. And so maybe today you would spend some time in these moments and just thank God for all that he's done. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, listen, I know I trust in Christ and I know I have God's spirit and I know I'm a child of God, but man, there's some discrepancies in my life in the way that I think and the way that I live live and in my primary identity as a child of God. And maybe today you would take some time to come before the Lord and just say you're sorry. Ask God by his spirit to help you live in that identity as a child of God. And maybe this morning in the few minutes that we have, you would want to take some time Say, God, would you give me more of your spirit? Would you make me more sensitive to the movement of your spirit in my life? Would you make me more sensitive to the voice of your spirit in my life? God, thank you for the new identity that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we are no longer condemned, that we are no longer apart from you, but we are drawn into your family and we have received your spirit. And God, we thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. God, help us to be the kind of people who are able to think and live the way you call us to, not out of our own efforts and not out of our own authority, but God, as your spirit empowers us to do it and out of our identity as your children, God, help us to go and to be the people that you call us to be. And Holy Spirit, would you move in this time? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.